Hello and welcome to Reading McCarthy. Reading McCarthy is a podcast devoted to the consideration discussion of the works of one of our greatest American writers, Cormac McCarthy. Each episode will call upon different well-known Cormacian readers, scholars, and other experts to help us explore different works and various essential aspects of McCarthy's writing. My name is Scott Yarbrough, and I will be your host for these forays into the deep wilds, dark roads, back alleys, and badlands of Cormac McCarthy. Our guest today is Dr. Lydia Cooper. Lydia Cooper is professor of American Lit at Creighton University. Her specializations include Native American literature, Western and Southwestern literature, gender studies, and of course, primarily for this podcast, Cormac McCarthy. Her most recent book is Cormac McCarthy, A Complexity Theory of Literature, published by Manchester University Press. Other books include Masculines and Literature of the American West, and No More Heroes, Narrative Perspective Morality in the Novels, those novels being the ones of Cormac McCarthy. And her work on McCarthy, other modern and contemporary American, Native American writers, has appeared in numerous academic journals, such as Studies in the Novel, Studies in American Indian Literature, and Interdisciplinary Studies in Literature and the Environment. Lydia, thank you for joining us here on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. I've been really looking forward to this. <laughs> you know, I don't know why I use that royal we like us. I think I want to give the impression to people, and they all know better now that I have like a, a robust team and a, a sound engineer yelling at me through a glass wall. It's really just me and a computer and you, but uh, I'm very happy you're here or virtually here. Now, something that's not in your Creighton University bio, but I think I'm going to out you on this. You're also a published novelist too, aren't you? That is accururate. And, and those books are still in print. If people want to look for them and find them on Amazon, I think they've had some pretty good reception, as I recall. Well, thank you. Weird violence, lots of murder. So, you know. And they fall into kind of ton of French, Philip Kerr category of literary murder, literary mystery murder kind of. Mystery, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. excellent. I think two thirds of English teachers of any level in the world have a murder mystery written or unwritten in them, not counting things they want to do to students at the end of term. Exactly. (laughs) Someone, I I forget who, but someone famously said any English professor is, if you pull open enough desk drawers, they've got a murder manuscript. Absolutely. (laughs) Stashed away in one of their drawers somewhere. (laughs) Well, which is why the uh, film remake for all its problems of DOA with Dennis Quaid, it's a very mediocre movie, but there is a nice section at the beginning where a kid gives him his mystery novel and he kind of opens it and slams it in the drawer. And there's a stack of other ones in there as well. But give us the title of that book. Is it book or books? Book. Um, it's called My Second Death. Ah, great title. Well, yes, Elliot reference there. <laughs> so we're going to be over the next few episodes, and we've done one previously, doing a lot of circling around, cycling into Blood Meridian. It's certainly not a book that any one podcast can handle. And honestly, for the what I would consider more essential McCarthy novels, that's been my plan on this series all along, that we kind of do a stab at it. Maybe we'll do a panel, and then we'll come back later and do another stab at it. And so it seems appropriate at this point to really start thinking about how he handles and approaches race in his works. And I guess I would throw out to you that there's roughly a Southern phase and then a Western phase. Do you think that's accurate or appropriate or what do you think? Yeah. You know, I first want to thank you for getting me on to talk about race and Cormac McCarthy, because, you know, this is a great topic. Yeah. 
<laughs> that clearly anyone can handle with a plum. It's a tricky subject, right? McCarthy deals a lot with questions of race in the American South and Appalachia. And then we get this transition where he moves to the American Southwest. And a lot of people have written on a thematic shift for McCarthy when he moves to the American Southwest. And I think that thematic shift is what inflects his discussions of and depictions of race, racial animus, racial systems in the U.S. So you see a lot more attention to Black and white American experience in the right. Appalachian novels. And then when you get the Southwestern novels, the attention really becomes focused on questions of empire and imperialism. And so you get a lot more nuanced, layered, and yeah. frankly, metaphorical discussion of power, privilege, questions of um, land ownership, uh, who owns, who is sovereign. And that becomes imbricated with these questions of race and racial power and animus um, in ways that I think are distinctive from some of the work that he did in the Appalachian novels, for sure. Yes. Yeah, ab absolutely. And it's interesting. Growing up in northern Florida, living in Alabama and South Carolina, normally until very recently, when we talked about diversity down here, it's always black and white. Mm -hmm. It's never, you might get discussions about Cuban Americans coming up out of South Florida, but I think really until you cross out of Mississippi and Louisiana into Texas, you haven't seen that much discussion of Native American culture, uh, probably with the exception of Cherokee and North Carolina and, and Tennessee. You don't see much discussion of Hispanics of various sorts in the country. And I know it was surprising for me the first time I read a book on diversity with the West Coast kind of bias, and it was so much more rich and interesting than in what I'd seen associated with the South and Southern studies. Now, by the same token, the class issues there were not as delved into as you would expect, whereas that's always connected to race discussions in the South. So if we... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So starting with those early books, if we think of the first three before we get to, you know, Sutri... What do you see going on in maybe Orchard Keeper, Child of God, or Outer Dark? I'm sitting here thinking, and I'm I'm not coming up with whole lots, but what do you think? Well, <laughs> one thing that I was going to do is pitch to you that um, we can throw in the Gardener's Son. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well. Um, and I actually think it helps us to kind of start with the Gardener's Son in conversation with the Orchard Keeper and, huh. the, and then the Stonemason, because we have a lot of themes that co-occur yeah. in some of these. Um, so the Gardner Sons is a screenplay that he wrote, and it's based on an incident that happened during Reconstruction. And in The Gardener's Son, a lot of the research that went into the production of this particular screenplay, a lot of the work that McCarthy did is paying attention in a really interesting way to the creation of a race-based ideology of the white working class huh. during Reconstruction in South Carolina. Um, and what he's interested in doing with the gardener's son is playing with these questions of the invention of race in, as a response to shifting tides of political power uh, and also a different a, a tide in industry where you're getting a shift away from the power centers and the plant economic power centers in the plantation uh. into industry life. And we have this reference to the garden um, and the gardener in the title of the play, which is specifically a reference to the protagonist's father. Yeah. But you also have a lot of attention to the way that the son is expected to be working in this factory as we're shifting away from an agrarian based economy in the South into 
you know, the cotton industry in this massive factory. And there's a, a very interesting and intricate hierarchy that's created within the factory where, you know, the white working class people are demarcated from black working class people right. who are recently emancipated because of this racial identity. And there's more explicit attention to some of these complicated questions during the protagonist's trial. We have a jury that's primarily Black. Um, the defense attorney is Black. And you get this interesting conversation between the protagonist's father and the attorney, uh, where the attorney points out that there is not equal justice under the yeah. law for Black people, as there are for even white working class Yeah, that's, that's my favorite part of the whole play. Yeah. Honestly. Is, that, is that preserved in the film? Because I don't really, you would think that scene would be a great touchstone in the film, and it just doesn't spring to mind. It doesn't. This is a question for Stacey Peebles because <laughs> I, I've seen the film once and I can't call it to mind. Like you yeah. say, it's not, it certainly doesn't a standout scene in the same way that it is in the screenplay. Um, but I do think a lot of the work that went into the Gardner's Stun, the Gardner's Stun is illustrative of some of the themes that you can see emerging with questions of industry and power. And a lot of what you see in the Orchard Keeper and to explicitly in the Orchard Keeper, Outer Dark is complicated because except for some references to Gullah culture, you really don't have a whole lot of on screen or on camera discussion right. of different ethnic or racial communities. Right. Um, but in the Orchard Keeper, you do have reference to the impact of some of these shifting tides of racial identity that are leveraged by people with power against these agrarian communities in order to shift the agrarian community to industrial communities. Right. Um, and you get some of this with the history of the white caps that gets referenced. So I think that there's a, in a sense, a kind of shadow play going on in some of these early right. Appalachian novels where the center of the story is white working class and agrarian communities. But the story itself is held in tension against this recognition that the very identities that are under focus in the novel are identities that are being forcibly changed or challenged in certain ways external to these communities. And so McCarthy does a really interesting thing where he develops the question of race and racial identity in terms of systems, in terms of the way that our communities are structured by impositions, um, economic impositions of transportation, um, hubs of industry, you know, that sort of thing. And, and again, kind of this constant question of the military industrial complex at the back of all of these different right. early depictions. And I, I would say that I think um, if I can just kind of pause here to make a larger comment about McCarthy and the question of race. When we talk about race and literature, the question of race itself, we're kind of asking three different questions yeah. simultaneously. You know, on the one hand, we're asking the question of, does this particular text or does this author deepen or extend our understanding right. of race as a concept and racial systems? Um, and then the second question is, are the people who are victimized or disenfranchised by these systems or racial minority experiences represented in a way that deepens or complexifies our understanding of those experiences? Yeah. And then the third question is, are these issues developed or treated in, like with sensitivity or insensitivity? And that's, of course, where we get a lot of the controversial questions about yeah, cancer yeah. banning and that sort of thing. And I think with McCarthy, 
what I would contend, and this is kind of where I've been drawing a lot of my comments from, is that the first question is incredibly interesting in McCarthy's work as a whole. Yes, in the Appalachian work, but I think it gets even more interesting in certain ways in the Southwestern right. as well. He does focus on white American experience and particularly white masculine experience. Yes, for sure. He does it in an incredibly interesting way that deepens and complexifies our understanding of the invention and creation of systems that codify power with white masculine experience, even disenfranchised working class white men. Right. And we get really fascinating and challenging and provocative discussions, I think, around this question, particularly in the Southwestern novels. In terms of that question of minority representation, as we've already indicated, there are almost none, right? This is not a strength of McCarthy's at all. He would be very upfront in that. He is an author who has said in interviews that he feels uncomfortable depicting interiority or the, experience, the subjective experience right. of people whose lives are very different from his own. And you know, I kind of mentioned that to say that the exception, which is kind of what I want to talk about next, are his depictions of Black working class experience, mm. which we do get specific individual forays into that are done, I think, in interesting ways. And then the third question about sensitivity is McCarthy is an author for whom you need to buckle up. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> and you know, as, as you've brought up before, does he use the N-word? Yes, all the time. Um, is, is sensitivity anything that you would think of when you think of McCarthy? Absolutely not. Yeah. But as you point out, you know, there's rape, there's incest, there's violence of every sort, scalpings, yeah. trees of dead babies. I mean, what have you, right? And so frankly, the questions that McCarthy's asking, the content of his fiction, it is always about blood and death and mystery and human meaningfulness. Yeah. These questions of life and death, they're unflinching, they're violent, they're absurdist in certain ways. Yes, they are deeply shocking, but they're meant to be and kind of have to forewarned is forearmed, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, the problem with allowing sensitivity to become a kind of shackles, which I, I believe is a problem at a lot of universities right now, is that they simply stop you from actually engaging in discourse, conversation, consideration. So the opportunity for someone to learn empathy, to learn understanding, to see things from another perspective or to be confronted with certain ideas is is done away with because it's simply you cannot talk about this from a variety of perspectives. You have to only look at it from kind of pre-approved perspectives. And as a result, it, again, it's a devalued discourse is watered down. And McCarthy has so clearly since day one refused to play by any of those games. And and I, maybe that's a big part of why he's always eschewed until the roads start, you know, until really the movies made of No Country for Old Men, he always eschews any kind of public space is he doesn't have to contend with people challenging him or asking him, you know, listening to you, the thing that, that struck me was the stonemason and Gardner's son are not set in Tennessee. Yes. Yeah. And he, when he comes down to Graniteville, so in South Carolina, you have an interesting dividing line where the low country uh, and the middle of the state had a very high African-American population. And then when you move up into the what's called the upstate, and I've always pointed out if it's low country, it should be up country, but no one agrees and has <laughs> decided to change it despite my continuing efforts. It's much more sparse. And there you see, you know, getting into the foothills of the Smokies and areas and the and Blue Ridge Mountains and all that, it's more Appalachian and culture. Even where the textile mills originally was largely Scots-Irish, 
not many slaves, not many, you know, much diversity, I guess we'd say. And that changed with that. And that, so I think, I wonder if his research, because he's, he's working on Sutri as he's working on the Gardener's son. And suddenly in Sutri, we have this amazing Ab Jones character. Yeah. I haven't really seen anything other than maybe that defense attorney in the first three books in play to set you up for that. Have you, or? No. And I, I mean, I, again, I think this is where you start seeing some of those distinctions. And of course you're going to get the stonemason right. as well. And I think with Ab Jones, what you get is in Sutri, a really interesting attention to the formation of communities and the vibrancy, life, and culture of distinctive communities that are demarcated through segregationist policies. And of course, with Sutri, the focus is on the literal reshaping and remapping right. of Knoxville. And segregation is part of this. This is taking place yeah. during the Brown v. Board decision, right? Yeah. And so you have this protagonist who is pushing against his ancestral uh, pressures. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, he comes from a, a white working class family, but they're a family of means. Um, yeah. They are father's a lawyer. So he has a sense of himself as a scion of a particular type of inheritance, an inheritance that expects something in the way of white collar work and in the way of it mattering that you have a parlor. Yeah. You know, these, these aspects, the trappings of middle class life and such re- walks away from that, but it's not a sort of, oh, I'll just try something else. I'm going to, it is violent, right? He absolutely rejects, categorically violently rejects his upbringing. And he is very lost, right? He's wandering back and forth um, Knoxville. And it really is the novel itself, very much like James Joyce's Ulysses is a mapping of space, but his mapping of space is a mapping also of some of these different attitudes. So with Gene Harrogate, you get some of these really deeply racist yeah. working class attitudes. Again, Harrogate is not clever enough to have invented his yeah. own official animus. Yeah. He's a victim of a system that has raised him to believe that he has and is something so long as he's better than them. And so you get this whole interesting section where the only people who will take him in are poor people in a working class black community and he won't stay with them because he's white. And so, (laughs) and so you have that character and then you have Ab Jones and his community and they're warm and friendly. (laughs) They represent the only sense of actual community or communal bonding that Sutri experiences for most of the novel. With that community, then you also get, because you're dealing with, these are the unnamed streets, right? The extremely low working class, and then you're dipping below working class into itinerant poverty. And when you get into that community, he has his community that he hangs out with. Um, Many of them are sex workers. And so there's a really interesting to go back to your point about class and race, there's an interesting discussion in Sutri about the formation of identity and community and how demarcated American identity is becoming in you know, 19, mid-1950s right. here based on questions of class and race. And these are very intersected questions. And so I do think it matters that you get a character like Ab Jones, who's this really vibrant and interesting character who plays a really important role in the novel. You know, at, at the same time, you have the really problematic Mother She, 
Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, again, a lot of work has been done on that. You know, McCarthy was kind of picturing her as a, a dull grit character. So you get that, like the witch, the virago. Right. A lot of people have pointed out that she's a very caricatured, Yeah. you know, the mystical black woman, and she is problematic in so many ways. Um, anyway, so back to Mother She. And Mother She's depiction is really problematic, as a lot of people have pointed out. I do think that McCarthy is playing around with interesting concepts with that character. However, again, one of the things that we see in McCarthy is even when we get some of these really interesting depictions of Black working class life, he does a good job delving into some of the complexities of Black masculine experience. Right. Feminine experience remains problematic. Right. And that's fairly consistent you know, I'm sure we will talk about Mexican femininity, yeah. um, Mexican women when we get to the border trilogy specifically. Um, so this is one of those issues that does become persistent through McCarthy's fiction. It, yeah. it recurs frequently, even when you're getting interesting concepts embodied in these characters, their depiction remains in a sense at a very literary level. This right. is not a depiction of a character with a human subjectivity. She's not a three-dimensional woman. No. But she represents some really interesting questions about right. feminine power, Black experience, marginalized experience, um, and the power to push back to speak, to have a voice um, within a community. So... And it's interesting, you know, he loves to play with tropes. He loves to play with what other people are doing in books. And you've got very similar characters showing up in Zora Neale Hurston. Hmm. You've got similar characters showing up in Alice, uh, or excuse me, in Tony Morrison. Yes. The, the Baby Suggs character in the book that comes later, Beloved, is although a little less of a caricature and a little less weird, really, frankly, weird is still the uh, kind of witch, uh, doctor, shamanist, African-American woman figure of wisdom and supernatural insight mm -hmm. who can deal with ghosts and summon everyone into a big ceremony and perform a kind of ritualistic exorcism and all that. He's picking up on something that he's seeing in yes. other places. Now, whether or not there's always in these cases that idea of authority, which is, does the, if you're, and, and I think he's very sensitive to this, as, like you said, and maybe it's one of the things that's blocked him a little bit is as, as a white guy coming from, you know, an upper middle class family in Knoxville, when he does, is he allowed to, does he have the authority to dig further into those characters or not? And I guess maybe the answer is, if you're going to go in at all, you need to go in enough to make people real and, and rounded and not caricatures, although Again, often he's more interested in what they stand for instead of who they are, I think. Yeah. And I do think, you know, there's an interesting argument to be made for the integration of intentionally caricatured characters. Yeah. Um, caricature probably isn't the right word for what I'm talking about here. They're just more transparently metaphorical characters. They yeah. represent rather than simply being. Right. Archetypes, and, maybe, instead of. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, a lot of people have talked about the fact that Judge Holden is one of these characters, you know, yeah. is one of the most interesting characters in fiction, I would contend. Yes. Yeah. But you, <laughs> um, but you can't imagine him feeling sad as a child having fallen down and scraped his knee. Correct. And he's very much, he's intentionally crafted as a character that you're never fully certain as human. Right. So in terms of not having a subjectivity, and I think, you know, one of the interesting things about mother, she, yes, she is a, a type. She is a trope. Um, she is a trope that 
is not uncommon, particularly in some of the late Harlem Renaissance literature. And so it's very clear that McCarthy is picking up on some of these things. Again, is he doing as nuanced or interesting a job in depicting them? Probably not, simply based on where he comes from and the limits of his own experience. But with Mother She, you do get a really interesting interplay between her role as healer and then her anger. She is a person who expresses a lot of anger. That's really problematic. But if you kind of make that connection with the Dolgret character, um, I think, you know, Carol Churchill right. does a really interesting job talking about women and anger and that caricature of the angry woman in her Dolgret character that she talks about in, in, in Top Girls, there's this really interesting shift where she's making the caricature itself inhabitable mm. for purposes of exploring and, and even exploding some of these archetypes where mm. they come from, whom they serve. And so in terms of that question of power, whom do they serve? I right. think it's interesting that Mother She to a certain extent, doesn't actually serve the narrative arc of Sutri. She's used in his narrative arc, but her purpose in the narrative is not something that he really fully understands. Right. He encounters her, she confuses him, (laughs) stumbles off, and who she is as a character is more fully understood by the other characters like Ab Jones. And for that matter, half of what we see from her is drug or fever dreams. So we're not even sure how much is (laughs) the, I'll never forget it. One of the conferences, someone tried to argue that the sexual scene between he and Mother She is meant to be read literally, and maybe it's up for debate whether they had sex or not, but Nell Sullivan does a great job saying, well, it can't be literally because his skeleton didn't literally come out of his body. And, and collapse to the floor, you know. Again, you know, maybe so. <laughs> <laughs> The stonemason is the one time he really just tries very hard to really dive into the experiences of a, of a working class Black American family, and that's set in Kentucky. I, for a little while, theorized, you know, there's a Louisville, Tennessee that's not far from where McCarthy lived and worked for a while. And I, I used to kind of theorize he really meant that place, but there are Kentucky references in the play. And I don't know enough about it. This would be another Stacy question of when he starts working on it, but it's published, of course, and it's first shown while he's working on the Border Trilogy, right? So 95, I think. So uh, it's interesting. He goes into the Border, he goes through Blood and Radio into the Border Trilogy, and then we get Stonemason. How do you feel about Stonemason and how that ties in with the rest of this? Well, I would actually, I know we're supposed to talk about the Sunset Limited later, but I would actually contend that the Stonemason and the Sunset Limited are really interesting when you put them together in conversation. And as you point out, the Stonemason gets produced later on. He starts working on it somewhat earlier, but a lot of the stuff that he works on comes out of a past experience or or you can kind of trace back some sort of intellectual lineage Uh that emerges from an earlier point in his life. And he had some personal experience working in stonemasonry right. that very likely the time that he started becoming interesting and in this interested in this oldest profession you know in the stonemason i think what's interesting is you have this meditation on the craft of stonemasonry that becomes a vehicle for a conversation again 
touching on some of these questions of community, of industry, of different types of economies. Um, this is a Black family that have been stonemasons for generations. They're craftsmen. The art of their work, it is both labor and art simultaneously. Right. And this is has become an essential part of their character as a family, um, as a community. And all of that experience is put into the context of a world that's changing dramatically. We've got the absolute boom in hydraulic cement, um, concrete, and we start losing the need for stonemasons, among other things. And then as what, I mean, this happens in so many industries, right? When you get concrete and cement, it's cheap, it's easily mass produced. So yes, you lose demand for stonemasonry, but then you're also looking at a cost differential. So the industry of the stonemason becomes expensive. So you have this working class family, part of that essential identity of laboring is in being in the working class. And in a sense, they're getting priced out of their own industry right? and priced out of their own identity in a really interesting way. So again, you start seeing some of these complicated discussions of race, ethnic identity, community, work, class, (laughs) and it all is sort of talked about with, as a lot of people have pointed out, this really Christian language. And that's the connection that I would make with the Sunset Limited, which, you know, is a play that comes much later in McCarthy's career. You have two characters in that play. So the stonemason, the entire Telfair family is Black. The way that the stonemason is set up, of course, you have the older Ben narrating. Right. And the stage directions say that this is supposed to look like and hit the audience like a Chautauqua, right? So there's a sort of spiritualist, spiritual revival sense that we're supposed to be getting even from the way that the play is set up. Then decades later, you get the Sunset Limited. Um, It's a dialogue between two characters, white and black. White is uh, agnostic, well, atheist. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Academic paired against his opposite in the play, who is a street preacher, a black street preacher named Black, called Black in the Play. And that is a sort of, it's a dialogue about human meaningfulness, death, despair, life, hope, salvation. But it's, I think, interesting and not accidental that the character Black is a street preacher. And so you're getting some of the same resonances where you have Ben Telfair's grandfather who articulates this incredibly Christian perspective on artistry and essential meaningfulness. And then you get Black able to speak about human meaningfulness in a way that pushes back against a lot of the academic white's critiques of the human enterprise. Right. White is very attuned to human corruption, um, the Holocaust, these massive, massive depredations, uh, violence, massacres, imperialism that cheapen what it means to be human to the point that White says, do we even deserve to survive? And he uses this image of, you know, God must have created the world. Yeah. (laughs) Stood in the door of infinite possibility. Look what we've made of it. (laughs) And Black pushes back against that and suggests that there isn't an amount of human depravity that we can come up with that can overrule or override the sort of divine essence, this mystery of Mm. human connection and compassion, that if we're capable of that amount of love, there has to be something worth fighting for. And this is a sort of transparently hopeful and uplifting viewpoint that is not characteristic in McCarthy's work. And I think it is not an accident that he puts 
those views in the mouths of these black working class characters. Right. Because I think that one of the things that McCarthy is interested in is paying attention to here is culpability. Mm. Uh, For what are we culpable? Um, To whom are we accountable? And I think that McCarthy is very aware of and interested in these questions of inheritance and inherited culpability. Not that I necessarily inherit guilt from what my ancestors did, but I have some element of accountability for it. Mm. And I think you see this over and over again. Again, Sutri is one of the best examples of this. He has pages and pages and pages of meditations on his own culpability, his own accountability because of who his father and his grandfather are. And you get in these Black characters, I think McCarthy sees a possibility for exploring a different experience of humanity, an experience that's really rooted in having been torn down as a community and building up, not destroying, but building up. And so you get these builders and hope speakers and truth tellers in a way that's really distinctive. And so I do think that it matters that these are the characters who get to voice some of those attitudes. They show up in other characters for sure, in other white characters as well. Right. But you get these very central Black characters who, who get to speak those words in a way that I think resonates across kind of all of McCarthy's corpus. Well, and that's that Faulknerian construction of Sound and the Fury, where the, the Copson's bloodline is played out and they brought it on themselves and they've put so much faith in their own power and their own significance. And Mr. Copson is destroyed by it and drinks himself to death. Mrs. Copson is a caricature of it, as is the son, Jason II. And Quentin's just totally undone by it and has placed all his hopes in his sister being pure and perfect and wonderful and representative of their whole family. And when she's not, it destroys him through no fault of hers. Mm -hmm. And it's only Dilsey who just survives and tries to do a little better every day and how she raises her family who will move on into the future as someone, you know, significant her family as as the cops and all end. So yeah, now I have to go back to the stonemason. I have not really put that in my top tier of, favorite McCarthy works. And now you've got me interested in going back to it as well. And at some point we will do a, a podcast on, on that one as well. So he heads out in the late seventies, early eighties out West. And then finally in 85, we get this magnum opus blood Meridian and everything he's been doing on race so far is turned upside down. And for me, this is when there's a really deep dive into it. And I, I, I don't think anyone comes off looking particularly great maybe the Mennonite you know maybe the old Mennonite the disordered Mennonite at the very yeah early on says you guys are just asking for it one of those soothsayers you always see you don't do it god lies yeah yeah. (laughs) if you're gonna you're gonna do it and be sorry so uh maybe walk us through how you see race showing up in blood meridian and how he portrays it it's i know it's complicated It is. You know, when I I started thinking about Blood Meridian first, when you sent me the topic of race and McCarthy, because one does, I think almost any topic you can come up with when it comes to Cormac McCarthy, the first thing anyone thinks of is Blood Meridian. Unless it's love, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Blood Meridian is one of those novels, and I mean this in the best possible way. It's a kitchen sink, right? Um, Right. Absolutely everything and the kitchen sink is in this novel. So kind of hard to tease out any sort of idea that doesn't show up at some point. And I I wasn't really sure how to start talking about it. And so I I came up with this idea. I'm going to pitch it to you. Um, I have no idea if this holds water because I haven't 
written on this and I, I don't know that anyone else has either. Um, so I, I'm probably way off the mark here, but I was kind of thinking about the move that McCarthy makes from Appalachia and a lot of the questions that he's dealing with in Appalachia. And then he is very intentional about his move to the Southwest. He knows exactly why he's interested in physically relocating to the Southwest and in researching and writing this Western. It's because he wants to write the great American Western. Right. That's his purpose. So he is very, very clearly shifting from a regional inflection to a national inflection. Because ironically, the Western, even though it is probably one of the only genres, if not the only genre defined by its region, it's always national and transnational in its energy, right? The Western is about America, the nation. Right. Always. And so he's very interested in shifting into this question of America, the nation. And then also because he focuses on the border, he's interested in the question of national boundaries, the the, sort of the, the, the questions of what the nation is, what the identity of the nation is pushed up against the boundary of the other. Right. So he is really interested in questions of nation, immediately becomes questions of empire, transnationalism. And so right at the beginning, you know, you've got the kid, he leaves Tennessee on his way, you know, he we get this really interesting journey to New Orleans. And as he's journeying to New Orleans, he passes black farm workers in a cotton field. And we get this line that describes them as a shadowed agony in the garden, right? This right. is a very Christological image. And then suddenly he's in New Orleans and he's at this bar. And he kind of gets into his first fight (laughs) of many. This is going to come to characterize his trajectory. And in this first fight, he's in this bar in New Orleans, and it's described as this essentially cosmopolitan place, right? Because he's got people, men from land so far and queer that standing over them where they lie bleeding in the mud, he feels mankind itself vindicated, right? (laughs) And so, <laughs> so what I'm pitching here is this idea that I think we get, in a sense, a verbal description of attention sort of forcibly shifted away from race relations in the United States, a country that was at least in part and essentially built on slavery to this cosmopolitan question of violence when you get different tribes, different nations sure. in conflict with each other. And what happens then, right? Right. And so you get, I think in Blood Meridian, I would contend there's kind of two energies. There's an equivalency about race and violence, and then there's a hierarchy of attention. And so what I mean by that is with the equivalency, you get so much attention to violence perpetrated by one people group against another. And then that people group turns around and visits the violence purport- equally disproportionately, I should yeah. say on the perpetrators initially. One group scalps, the next group turns back and scalps the other group. Right. And and again, this kind of goes back to that epigram at the beginning about evidence of scalping From being part 300,000 years, yeah. Yes. An intrinsic part, not just of, you know, homo sapiens, but, you know, our entire animal lineage yeah. <laughs> uh, has this innate aggression. And of course, as we now know, you know, Homo sapiens probably much more violent than Neanderthals. And right. so McCarthy's not wrong, right? Biologically speaking, evolutionarily speaking, people are violent. They are the, gross. the apex <laughs> of the apex predators, all the other apex predators on the extinction list, right? <laughs> and, exactly. And we're the we're lone survivors. And then of course, I guess in the road, what happens when the apex predator has nothing left to predate upon, but each other. That's what you get. (laughs) I really think there's something interesting going on with the idea of the other as well, because 
when they first go down there, the other are the Apache. Mm-hmm. And then, like you said, they have it turned about them because, well, yeah, you may think the Apache's the meanest game in town, but guess what? Here come the Comanche. And they are the ones who, why the Apache fled so low into Mexico is to get away from the Comanche that they're scared of. And that's, of course, that great slash horrific slash horrible slash awesome scene of the Legion coming through and just wiping them out and, you know, degraded degrading every human creature into just spoiled remains in a way. One of the most beautiful passages ever written, I think. Yeah. yeah, and, and a, But one uh, of the most grotesque subjects. Yeah, exactly. And so then you have the two Jacksons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I don't know, I'd have to go this back to see. This is a perfect example it, of that equivalency, right? right? That I was talking about the white Jackson and black Jackson. Well, and I'm thinking about that creation of the other, because when between the two of them, they all stand back and let them work it out. Since Black Jackson is part of their gang, although all these guys are racist of some sort and leaving the judge into his own special category of it might be him versus the entire human race. When Black Jackson takes care of White Jackson, no one does anything about it. If, if it's so many other writers telling the story, all his white friends jump up and pull guns or, or something and then someone else stands them down or something. That doesn't happen. And then but Black Jackson's life, of course, gets weirder and worse and weirder and worse as time goes on. So as long as he's part of their people group, as you said, it's everyone who's outside that group is the other. So it is, like you say, it's not only racist tribalism writ large and small to the bloody consequences of everyone. If you're one of our group, you're allowed to go out and do anything you want. But the minute you're not in the group, we don't care about you at all. Yeah, I do think that's one of the arguments that McCarthy is making with this equivalency of violence, Mm. that any group, any person is capable of depravity beyond what we want to think of ourselves. And so in this particular instance, you get two John Jacksons, right? Right. (laughs) One is white, one is black. And that's commented upon as this oddity, right? And then Bathcat foretells that yeah. black jackson become yet more violent and and you get this sense that they're both white jackson and black jackson are part of the gang yeah because they're part of the gang they're both us but there is they're playing out in microcosm this sort of racial animus yeah although it's not clearly demarcated racially it's this sense that there's i guess a highlander situation there, there can only be one jackson, jackson. Yeah. and he does take his head doesn't jackson. he yeah Um, Although to to clarify for the audience, I don't think the first Highlander movie is out by 1985. This Uh, is not, in fact, perhaps a Highlander reference. However, who knows about Highlander referencing Blood Meridian, right? Yeah, Uh, for sure. I think, you know, Black Jackson really emulates Judge Holden, right? He goes deeper and deeper into this process of becoming the most violent, the most powerful. And so I think that there is this implied but recurring argument that Blood Meridian makes that any individual and any community has this capacity. And without the veneer of civilization and without the sort of civilized violence of the rule of law, which again, the rule of law permitted slavery. So law itself can encode horrific violence. Absolutely. But it carries this veneer of civility stripped of that at base, you have hungry marauders. Yeah. Who are apex predators. And Judge Holden makes this argument explicit when he says, This is who we are. Yeah. All people are only ever in service to the God of war. 
And only by becoming an acolyte of the God of war, by surrendering, do you become, in a sense, a fully realized human. This is who you're meant to be, is the bloodiest warrior on the stage. Yeah, it's a Nietzschean will to power taken to the extreme of just to embrace your uh, utter lack of, that it's all about simply solidifying your own power base and nothing else matters. Yeah. I think there is, there's a tendency in people to promote one group and valorize them. It is to demonize the other group. Mm -hmm. So when we, the United States goes into World War I, it's not like the Germans were really any less moral than the French or the British. I do think they were more in the wrong and they struck first. So they were the bad guys. But, you know, in the United States, because the war was not that popular at first, we launched an elaborate propaganda campaign to talk about how horrible and awful and horrific the, the evil Huns were and use racial caricaturing back to the Genghis Khan and, and that group and all of the thousands of years or, or thousands of peoples in between that time. And so we had that need to always, one side becomes the good guys and pretty and nice and good. And it's one of the values, of course, that Faulkner brought to Southern Lit is he kind of wouldn't do that for anyone. Mm -hmm. uh, he could have a, a good characters of any variety and bad characters. Or when I say bad, I don't mean badly composed. I mean, immoral and, and challenging and dark from any background as well. And that's, I think, where many people can go wrong at this. And McCarthy just says that's where we all are. But would you say this is off topic a little, although I think we get there at the end of the Border Trilogy, would you say that that's, so in McCarthy's writing Blood Meridian, he's in his 40s and 50s. And then, you know, 10 years pass, or really not that long, seven years pass, and he starts on the Border Trilogy, and he's in a very different place, I think, by the end of Cities of the Plain. I think there's a counterbalance. Is that because he's 10 or 15 years older, or do you think this is kind of always part of his cosmology? And I'm particularly thinking in of the last sequence in the epilogue of Cities of the Plain, where it's Billy Parham on one side of an overpass, and this, again, mystical, almost Holden-esque, death-like figure on the other side, uh, who comes over to share a meal and tell him a story about the sacrifice. We have, mm -hmm. you know, there seems to be some references to Rene Girard and sacrificial crisis and all that going on. I don't know if that's, I, I have to go back to my Michael Cruz book and see if he's where he's, I know he's referencing Girard throughout his books. I don't know if yeah. it's there or not, but just in general, do you think, I realize this question's all over the place, so I'll try to boil it back down. Is that his ongoing worldview in Blood Meridian, it, or is it a worldview that problematizes when people simplify things, and he offers some other ways to see that worldview or those perspectives through the Border Trilogy? To a certain extent, Blood Meridian is an exception novel, which makes it really hard to talk about. Huh. But I would say that I think... One of the interesting things that McCarthy is doing in Blood Meridian is he is presenting one version of the world as it actually is. But there are different versions of the world as it actually is. And I think one of the things that makes Blood Meridian so damn difficult to figure out is because there's a sort of false dialogue that runs through the center of the novel. Mm. You have the kid, you have Judge Holden. They're 
oppositions, right? Yeah. But what do they represent? Judge Holden says that he views the kid as his son, as his progenitor, as the next generation, the one who will fulfill his mission. He claims the kid. The kid says no. The kid represents, according to the ex-priest, the one who stands against the judge. And then the kid says no to that too. Right. So there's this interesting dialogue where I think we read Blood Meridian and we want to know, is Judge Holden's worldview? Obviously, he's not speaking for the author. Some people assumed that, I think, kind of early on. That's very clearly a mistake. Yeah. Um, Mac McCarthy is, number one, not utterly depraved. <laughs> <laughs> but also, number two, they're just it is absolutely impossible to read anything else really, that he has ever written and not see that essential belief that the world material is not all that there is. There has to be some at least possibility of deeper meaning. And that deeper meaning has to have something to do with what gives validity to altruism, to gratitude, to compassion, to these softer categories of human engagement that Judge Holden would write off as weakness. Yeah of the Untermensch, right? And I think that this is kind of where in Blood Meridian, you know, you have this sort of equivalency of violence. I would put it in this way that I think that one of the things that McCarthy does in Blood Meridian that's really unusual, that disturbs and distresses a lot of people is that you have these different categories of people, Comanche, Apache, Yuma, White's gang, and then Glanton's gang who fight against each other. They slaughter each other. It's pretty equitable in terms of disgustingness and the violence. And in an historical context, we recognize that not all the forces were equal and not all of their purposes in warring were equal. Yeah. But none of the purposes for warring are made explicit except for White's gang and then Glanton's gang. Yeah. And so I think that one of the things that McCarthy is doing in Blood Meridian is he is erasing the sort of narrative of the automatic victimization or innocence of those who are slaughtered. The slaughtered are not innocent. The slaughtered right. are not depicted as passive, really. Occasionally you get citizens who get slaughtered and you have some brief moments of recognition of civilians caught up right. in warfare. And those depictions are incredibly sensitive. Those depictions are very heartbreaking. They're moving moments. Um, but in general, when you get these warring bodies that collide, no one comes out looking good, right? Um, their causes, their purpose, what they're fighting for, utterly irrelevant for the most part. But I think there's a sort of clear distinction between the violence of the Comanches, the violence of the Apaches, and the violence of the white groups that the kid fights with. And I think that distinction is, you know, McCarthy saying any person individually in any group is capable of this amount of violence. To deny that is to not deny an essential part of what makes us human. To me, at least this, you know, it's, it's dangerous to deny it, but I think it's dangerous to deny it because this is where I think that hierarchy comes into play. Mm. I think McCarthy says, because in the particular that I'm talking about, which is the, you know, post Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, right? Right. In the era of manifest destiny, it wasn't just anyone acting out the mission of manifest destiny. It was white men who were American for the most part. And they swept up with them, like Black Jackson, other people who are seeking a way into this power. Looking for empowerment. Yeah. And I think that that really matters because I think what Blood Meridian is doing is very much paying attention to what happens when you have people who recognize and harness that will to power, Mm. that innate depravity 
that I think McCarthy would argue all of us are capable of, when that's harnessed in the name of nationalism, as Captain White makes explicit, um, this is very much done in the name of nationalism. It is done with an explicit goal to erase and degrade all other communities until we're the only one sea to shining sea. And then you get sort of Judge Holden as the apotheosis of this mission, right? And so I think that it matters that it becomes really particular. And I think that particular call to violence is within the world of Blood Meridian. It wins. At the end of the day, Judge Holden is left standing and no one else is. And so I think that's what makes it tricky. But I think to just kind of say, well, the one left alive is the one who wins is overly simplistic because over and over and over again, you get these avatars of this attitude who meet violent ends in this really uh, targeted way, right? So Captain White, he's he's incredibly racist. He's incredibly nationalist. He yeah. ends up with his head in a jar, pickled yeah. in a jar, right? Yeah. John Joel Glanton, his death. He, yeah. <laughs> if you, you know, in terms of that sensitivity question, I think he's got what three of the most vicious, ugly, racist epithets in his yeah. final words. Yeah. He has the yeah. most violent, ugly final words. He's awoken in bed. He wakes up. He spouts this out, and then and that's the end of him. Yeah. To the thrapple, right? yeah, yeah, the wonderful. Split the head of John Joel Glant into the thrapple. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't even t- again with the taking of a head, just instead of it clean horizontally, Marie Antoinette mm-hmm. fashion. It's uh, right down the middle, exactly. Yeah, and I think that this is where. So when you get to the border trilogy, the border trilogy in many ways is it's nowhere near as horrifically violent, right? Its protagonists are much more explicitly moral and good and kind and compassionate. It is easier to root for the people who seem like the good guys. I think the Border Trilogy is really dealing with some complex issues, however, of guilt and accountability Mm. and empire. And I think to miss those questions is to miss kind of the heart of what's going on. I think Blood Meridian is absolutely dealing with all of those questions. It's so violent. I think people can kind of miss that sometimes. Right. This is this. There is a hierarchy of accountability because it is centered on that white American project. Anyone could have done this, but in fact, it was one people group that did it. Right. And it just I I'm kind of drawing here. Uh, James Baldwin has that um, in one of the letters that he wrote. He says it's it's not permissible that the authors of devastation should be innocent. It is the innocence which constitutes the crime. Mm. And I think that that's one of the things that McCarthy introduces in Blood Meridian. And I do think you really get that as it emerges as the central theme of the Border Trilogy: the innocence that constitutes the crime. And I think you get that in the character first of John Grady Cole. He is an innocent. He is genuinely innocent. He's 16 years old. He goes to Mexico because he has these ideas of open pasture land, a return to agrarian ideal where he gets to be a cowboy and be free. And it becomes a question of whose land is it? Whose country does he claim and which country claims him? And you know, he goes through all of his adventures, he falls for the daughter of the Hacendado, and then he returns after a prison sentence, (laughs) many adventures, losing the love of his life with his cousin. And at the end of all of these adventures, his cousin, his hapless cousin, a true innocent, (laughs) who he's dragged along with him, he looks at him and he says, this is the guy who's come to ruin no man's daughter, right? This is Mm -hmm. a man who came to ruin no country. And I think that the question of whose country 
is it becomes essential in the border trilogy. And it's, it's an argument that plays out through John Grady's innocence to which he is not permitted that his Hmm. innocence becomes the crime that he's held accountable for because he is playing out. And this is, I think Dwayne Alfonso makes this argument pretty clear. He is playing out American imperial aggression, whether he wants to or not, he doesn't get to say, I'm not accountable. Right. I'm just in love with a pretty girl. Right. Exactly. And, and again, it's made so complex because there's also this whole class issue thing. Yes. Which is yeah. you're kind of the James Dean guy coming in from America. You look good. You can, you're great with horses. And you think you get to jump up several class, but your guy losing his small ranch on this massive ranch where we have people educated in Europe. And we have our own airplane and we have multiple houses in different cities. And so you're just this kid from the sticks. Why would you think you have a shot here? If you weren't the James Dean outsider guy, you wouldn't. And if it weren't for a tool to use against dad and, mm-hmm. and the great aunt, you wouldn't. We have on the one hand, the kind of John Grady's part of that system where he would automatically assume some kind of class advantage against anyone who's who's Mexican. And when he gets down there, it's completely turned upside down and he's the outsider looking in. Yeah. But I do think as well with that, you get, in addition to class, I think there's this really interesting like class and accountability come into play, right? Because right? Anza tells John Grady that she's, you know, she's open to salvation in any form, right? She's not against John Grady because he's poor. Right. And then she goes off and tells this whole story about how she fell in love with a revolutionary back in the day. She wanted to overturn the entire system. And she basically tells him Alejandra is just looking for, you know, kind of a stick to poke in her dad's eye. Yeah. And that's all John Grady is going to be unless he becomes accountable. Is he going to overthrow the system? And I think when we get to the crossing, we have a different narrative that plays out with Boyd because Boyd does become the man of the people. He actually leans into that taking, I mean, it's again, sort of hapless on his part. He doesn't intentionally take down um, (laughs) the sheriff and the entire like power structure in the small town, but he ends up doing it accidentally. (laughs) Um, but haplessly in a sense, because he's defending this girl's honor, right? But he ends up actively becoming an agent yeah. of revolution, um, a person that they create corridos about because yeah. he represents a willingness to take on the system as the outsider. He uses his outsider status against the powers that be in this small town in the same way that I think Alfonso is calling on John Grady. I think she gives him a sense of his own capacity for power. Um, and he is not interested in that. He wants the girl and he wants the horses. Right. Um, and I think that part of that failure is deep down, he is conflicted, right? He really does. He's in love with Alejandra, but he loves the horses. Yeah. He is in love with yeah. the ranch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm doing some work here lately on Go Down Moses with Faulkner and how that's showing up in McCarthy. And I'm particularly looking at the road, but of course, in the central story that everyone knows from Go Down Moses, the bear, Ike McCaslin, to confront the bear, to be involved in nature, has to leave behind these trappings of white male power, the watch, the compass, the gun, and then he can. And he follows up as a young man of repudiating his family heritage. He gives up the plantation. He takes all the cash from it and he tries to give it to all the heirs of his kind of horrible, corrupt grandfather. So when we talk about that ranch, 
and who owns it. I wonder if one of the things McCarthy is saying is no one owns it. Mm-hmm. You're just on it. Mm-hmm. And, and no matter where we're coming from, if we, if we profess to own it, that's our first yes. move in the wrong direction. Do you think yeah. that Billy gained? So Billy, although he has a few bad experiences in Mexico, some of them are brought on by themselves because of Boyd. Um, the wolf was the worst part, of course, when he takes the wolf down. And then Boyd gets him in more trouble than he had to. And then later, when he goes back to find Boyd, he deals, of course, with the kind of roving bandits who just out of meanness stab his horse. But mostly in The Crossing, Billy is treated pretty kindly again and again as this kind of wandering penitent or pilgrim. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, the, the joke for me is I always think of Billy Pilgrim and a Kurt Vonnegut character yep. instead of Billy Parham. <laughs> it just happens in my head every time. Then in Cities of the Plain, the first Billy we meet to me is not Billy. He's he's older Rawlings. Yeah. And then we leave that Billy behind and go back to the real Billy of the crossing at the end. So do you think in Billy who survives, but who becomes homeless and itinerant and wandering and goes to Hollywood for a while? One of the things people I think forget is that the end of the crossing is set several years after when the book is published. So it's actually McCarthy's first science fiction novel. <laughs> do you think he learned some of these lessons you're talking about? Do you think he's more integrated in a way than yeah than I, predecessors? I do I do I so I think that in the crossing the Billy Billy and the she wolf their relationship I think that is where you kind of get some of that the central arguments that you get in the bear passage right like this is this is where you kind of get that first articulation of the argument that people don't own the land right we are part of it we are from it we are on it, we are of it in the same way as our moles and voles and birds and insects and she wolves. Um, we are part of the world, and to claim ownership of it is to put ourselves into an antagonistic relationship with it. Mm. And so, I think that in the crossing, Billy sort of stumbles into this different way of perceiving the world. He is not intentionally part of critiquing the system. Right. He teaches Boyd how to ranch his younger brother, Boyd. Right. Um, he is very much like his father. He's on, he's on board with his dad's right. demarcating of their land with fences, bringing in cattle, which are non-indigenous species to overgraze this land in New Mexico, yeah. which, you know, has had horrible effects for, you know, aridification and that sort of thing. And so Billy's part of this process. Right. But then he, is struck by the wolf who gets caught in a trap and something about her wildness speaks to him and Mm. he takes her down to Mexico to free her. And then of course he ends up in all of his different adventures where, you know, his family is killed. Boyd is taken. He goes to rescue Boyd. Boyd ends up fitting in in Mexico in a way that Billy never did and wants to stay there and then gets shot. And then Billy has to rescue him and he dies, et cetera. But towards the end in like the last third of the book, right after, um, basically around the time that Boyd is is shot. And then certainly after Boyd's death, Billy is very consistently treated kindly yeah. as he wanders back and forth. And I do think the people that he's treated kindly by are people who are not part of the land owning system. Right. Right. So he's treated kindly by, you know, Roma people. He's treated kindly by a Yaki guy. Yeah. Um, indigenous guy. He's treated kindly by poor Mexican families who right. have been there as the, their town has shifted hands from nation to nation and their languages have shifted and they've stayed there. Yeah. 
Um, so he's treated kindly by communities that seem to recognize and are assigned to him this identity, this worldview that I don't know that he fully internalizes. And then, like you say, when we get to Cities of the Plain, in the beginning, he doesn't seem like he's Billy the character at all. At There's all, only, yeah. Nothing, the only thing that is consistent or that links him to that earlier Billy is the minute he sees John Grady Cole, who's this young idiot kid with, you know, symbolic ideals, yeah. he immediately says, like, you know, he's my responsibility. Yeah. I must take care of him. And that sort of instinctive but absolute commitment to being John Grady's caretaker makes absolutely no sense outside of the crossing. Yeah. <laughs> so you kind of need that character connection in order to make sense of the, right. the premise of Cities of the Plain. But then you really, I mean, among other things, you know, it's John Grady Cole in Cities of the Plain who has this deep instinct for animals, both wild and free, who is, I mean, John Grady's all about breaking horses. So yeah. he kind of likes taming animals, but he very much sort of recognizes the distinctions between wild and free. And Billy doesn't seem to have any interest in that. He just, yeah. he's around and it's his job end of day. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then you get to the end. And again, this is, you know, this Billy does not come across particularly well. He is trying to save John Grady Cole. That's admirable, but he has absolutely no compassion or way to understand John Grady's love for Magdalena. Yeah. John Grady, like Magdalena's pimp kills John Grady and is it Billy blames the dead girl. Yeah. Yeah. Whores. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is really good luck, Billy. Um, <laughs> Um, but then, you know, after the death of his surrogate brother figure, he's not really been successful at anything in his life. Um, we have this weird epilogue where days passed and we're wandering into the future. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he just, he continues to migrate and wander. He doesn't own anything, right? Like we're told explicitly, he leaves with nothing except the puppy that John yeah. Grady adopted. So he doesn't own anything and he spends the rest of his life not trying to own or take possession of or become part of any sort of existing enterprise. Um, he works in Hollywood until the work dries up and then he goes and wanders here and he wanders there and he just kind of goes wherever things are, pitches in for while it's there and then he moves on when the industry leaves. And so I think that that language that you get at the end of Cities of the Plain that treats Billy very much like a pilgrim, you know, the, his scarred hands maps of the world, Yeah, it, I think is very much, I think, a suggestion on McCarthy's part. Like you get the antithesis of this point in Blood Meridian, where you get Judge Holden's assertion that he will be suzerain over everything. Right. He will own everything. Everything will be subject to his will. And I think at the end of Cities of the Plain, you have in Billy a character who has given up all claim to ownership at all. He simply uses what is there for him and delights in the world as it is. And in that way, he is very much like the she-wolf. Yeah. Delights in the world and paneled for her, right? Yeah. And so I think that that's kind of the argument that you get as the the pitched antithesis to what you find in well, and, and Billy is denied by war. He's yes, not, he's not allowed yeah. to enter the war, even though yes, he's, it's his heart. <laughs> well, you get the feeling, heart murmur, but you can yeah. extrapolate from that. <laughs> well, the feeling is that he wants to go to war, not really because he cares about Pearl Harbor, because he just he just needs somewhere to be around people and needs something to do. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and uh, otherwise he's just lost without family. Mm -hmm. So. I think we've covered this pretty well, but I'll go ahead and ask it. He, again, McCarthy just doesn't seem to care about our trends, attitudes, fads. And my question to you when I emailed you the other way is, is this good or bad? Is another just another way for us to view his work? I mean, I, I think we talked about that a good bit going into Blood Meridian. But at the end of the day, do you think his willingness to prod our sensitivities and to not care about 
culturally where we stand in terms of offending or not offending people? Is this better for him as an artist? Is it bothersome? Is it all of the above? Oh, I mean, everything is all of the above, right? (laughs) I mean, I think as we've talked about, I think for Cormac McCarthy, if it doesn't have to do with life and death and essential meaningfulness, does it matter? Is it a conversation worth having? And so I think if you ask yourself the question, is human nature essentially different now than it has been at any point in our history as a species? If you think the answer is yes, then sure, McCarthy might be outdated. But I, and I think many would agree with me, don't think the answer is yes. I don't think human nature is essentially different now. I think individually and as a species, we experience the world in a way inflected by our individual cultures and experiences, and that gives us unique perspectives, and those perspectives do change. Hmm. But essentially, the questions that drive us, our desire for connection with other people, our need for community, our desire to have a sense of ourselves as meaningful, our sort of innate predilections for violence and aggression. Right. Uh, we're magpies, we're greedy, we're avaricious. Have our team win over the other team. And it may be the, the Yaqui versus the Apache versus the Comanche versus the Mexican versus the exactly. gang. Yeah. Yeah. Sharks, jets, you know, <laughs> <laughs> we, we have this capacity for that kind of thinking. We also have a capacity for love. Uh, We can love species different from ourselves without understanding them, far less loving, confusing other people. Yeah. And so I think that essentially McCarthy asks and answers really interesting questions in really interesting ways. That makes him relevant in a way that is not trendy. In the same way that we read things that we can read Rumi's poetry and be deeply moved. Mm. And very few of us have any particular experience that resonates yeah. with a dude from current day Afghanistan yeah. <laughs> who lived hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And so I think what we're talking about with McCarthy when it comes to questions of race is kind of two separate things at the same time. On the one hand, I think, and I would contend that he says very interesting and provocative and challenging things about power and aggression that is true innately of all people, but it is not true of all human communities. Hmm. I think he names and calls out certain types of white masculine experience in America that have driven the United States to these expressions of power and aggression. I think he names guilt and accountability and complicity in a way that's incredibly provocative, incredibly challenging in terms of like that innocence being the crime. It is a crime. He does not permit his readers. However, I think who you are when you read his books is going to inflect your experience of reading his books, right? Right. He is not interested in a comfortable read. I think that it would be appropriate for white folks reading his books to be the most uncomfortable (laughs) if you're reading his stuff. By contrast, you know, if you are a Mexican woman and you're reading McCarthy's books and the only two Mexican women characters are portrayed as these incredibly naive, innocent, beautiful girls who get like cast aside or treated badly or murdered, uh, pimped out and then murdered. Or Um, or the the super educated revolutionary yes <laughs> aristocrat with great mystical wisdom yeah yeah those are kind, kind of, of two extremes it seems like there's got to yes. be a little bit of room in between there for <laughs> someone who really likes the beatles and you know hates her job or something exactly, like that exactly exactly so if you're looking for complex representation you're not going to find it and so right. i think if you you know in terms of those kind of different questions that we ask when we talk about race and mccarthy if you're asking does he say challenging provocative things about whiteness 
and America and power, does he say challenging and provocative things about um, sort of the universal predilection for violence? Yes, he does. And yes, those are still relevant. Yes, those are interesting. And yes, I think it's worth reading and discussing. If you're looking for deep and provocative, challenging expressions of and depictions of experiences of people other than white Americans, he's not your man. No. And you know, I think there's a there's a double play in the American publishing establishment, the academy and readership, where we sometimes apply that critique. And I'm not yeah. saying a critique is ever a bad idea. I think yeah. I think where we go wrong is to be too much fans of any artist. Mm-hmm. And that shuts down on some of your ability to understand what they're doing if you're worrying too much about how you feel about the person and not yeah. the art. But on the other hand, if I'm reading Alice Walker, it doesn't really bother me that there's not a really introspective thoroughly drawn white man in Alice Walker or Toni Morrison, because that's not their project. And it's not really appropriate for me to want that to be their project. And so I think sometimes now McCarthy, I I do think he's open to this, maybe not as much in terms of just race, because he first he tackles it race. So he's kind of setting himself up. You think there would be more inclusivity, but certainly when it comes to women, because at this point we're talking, you know, slightly more than 50% of the species. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and, and, a, and a key component, you know, current science notwithstanding to perpetuating the species. And so, there, and I do think and there will be conversations to come on, on that aspect as well. Yes. yes. Very excited for that episode, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> the shift gears radically. Here's the question I always ask all the guests their first time on the podcast, which is what's your favorite McCarthy novel and why? I think I know the answer, but let's hear what you say. Okay. So first of all, as I'm sure everyone answers, what a cruel question. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The first three or four people just refused to even say one. They said, well, it's this and this and that. I said, okay, but if it's one. But if it's one, if you had to pick. So here's the thing, right? You say, what's your favorite McCarthy novel? I'm going to say that my favorite changes based on what I'm reading and why in the moment. What do I think is the best McCarthy novel? Blood Meridian. Come on. Why are we having this conversation? But Um, My current favorite novel is The Crossing. I will put this, I mean, you know, I just think The Crossing in terms of its depiction of non-human species, in terms of its depiction of the natural world in a way that's not anthropomorphizing, but that gives such life and vitality and dignity to non-human world. It is one of the most beautiful books. And given everything on the news right now about climate change, climate disaster, ecosystem yeah. collapse, species decimation, it is very depressing to be alive right now in certain yeah. ways. And it is, it's emotionally devastating to watch what we're doing to the world. And I keep going back to different passages that I have underlined so many times, so many times I can't even read them now. Now when you turn the page over, the other page is obscure. It's, just completely read it. obscure, it's a, yes. a palimpsest. Yes. You know, there are a fair number of McCarthy fans who do not love The Crossing, and I yes. don't get it. I loved All the Pretty Horses, but when The Crossing yeah. came out, when I first got All the Pretty Horses, I knew Chip Arnold through Faulkner Studies, and I knew he was a McCarthy guy. And I'd been into McCarthy for a little while before all the pretty horses, but I, I I'd only read the two big ones. You know, I hadn't read everything else. They weren't available really until then. Yeah. And so I reached out to Chip and we started this kind of email correspondence that really went on until this kind of medical uh, realities interfered with his work. And I asked him about the crossing and his first response was it's, it's a modern masterpiece. Mm-hmm. And, and I agree with it. I think people really undervalue the crossing and it's always in rotation among my yeah. top three or four as well. 
for sure. All the Pretty Horses was the first McCarthy novel I ever read. It changed my life. Yeah. It was I, All the Pretty Horses is always going to be one of my favorite books of all time. A lot of that is sentimental. I don't know that it's the best McCarthy novel, but in terms of McCarthy novels, I go back and reread when I need to. Yep. It's it's up there. Yeah. You one Meridian you don't reread because you need to. Frankly, yeah, no. although <laughs> you find yourself in life where you need to feel better about humanity, so yeah. you just crack open Blood but Meridian. But you find yourself compelled to reread it, don't you? Yes. Oh, Blood Meridian, I've reread probably more than any other McCarthy novel. I think most of us have, right? But it's just because you have to. Yeah. You know, it's funny because for me, that one started mid list, as mm-hmm. much as I, I knew it was his most important. Yes. But in terms of favorites, and it slowly yeah. has made its way up my list yes. and to the top few. I am the same. I think you kind of have to read. I think it's about your 27th read before Blood Meridian clicks. Yeah. So, so for those listeners who have only read it 25 <laughs> times, you're getting close. Keep going. <laughs> yeah, keep going. Lydia, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been, it's been really great. Thank you so much for having me. Lydia Cooper is professor of American literature at Creighton University. Her specializations include Native American literature, Western literature, Southwestern literature, gender studies, and, of course, Cormac McCarthy. Her most recent book is Cormac McCarthy, A Complexity Theory of Literature, published by Manchester University Press. Other books include Masculinities in Literature of the American West and No More Heroes, Narrative Perspective, Morality, and the Novels. Again, those novels being the novels of Cormac McCarthy. Her work on McCarthy and on other modern contemporary American Native American writers has appeared in numerous academic journals. Thanks as well to Thomas Fry who composed, performed, produced the music for reading McCarthy. The views of the host and his guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their home institutions or the Cormac McCarthy Society, although in our hearts we hope they'll someday see the light. Download, follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're agreeable, it'll help us if you provide favorable reviews on these platforms. If you enjoyed this podcast, you may also enjoy the Great American Novel Podcast, hosted by myself and Kurt Kerna. To contact me, please reach out to readingmccarthy at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter and Facebook. I, I will check that Facebook site at some point if Steve or I can remember the sign-on. And the website's readingmccarthy.buzzsprout.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can click on the little heart symbol at the top of the page to buy the show a cappuccino or support it at www.patreon.com forward slash Freedom McCarthy. Thanks for listening.